right, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to cover the whole, uh, the whole chapter this morning, so we're looking at verses 1 through 26. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. It says, Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no prophet in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. And the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines who, had, who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go in, into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, or Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to some in Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites, the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were all at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Mesa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its, in its sheath, fastened to his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, It is well with you, my brother. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him, with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of, the, one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Bethmaacah, and all the Bichrites assembled to follow him in. All the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmaacah. They cast up a mound against the city and stood against the rampart, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant, and he answered, I am listening. Then she said, 
They used to say, or they used to say in this former time, in former times, let them be asked counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it for me, or from me, far be it, excuse me, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up and destroy, or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and Pelathites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira. The Jairite was also David's priest. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. So, as we've been walking through First and Second Samuel, here's a common response that I get. Um, number one, it's brutal, and number two, the corruption is unbelievable. Right. So that's that's usually what uh, that stands out between these two books. And and I will say, yeah, it, it is. It is. It is brutal and. Corruption is unbelievable sometimes as we are reading, but it's a great reminder of human depravity. It's, it's a great reminder of what humans are capable of uh, when we focus on self, when we don't worry about anything else other than what we want. This is the road that will take you down. Because it, there's a lot of different people here in these uh, two books that we can relate to if it comes to anger if it comes to selfishness whatever the 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 topic is we we can relate to them because we have all been there before I, I'm I'm pretty certain no one here has ever stabbed anybody in a stomach until their intros came out but at the same time we have been angry at our neighbor we have wanted to hurt others uh, we have been tempted to do evil against other people. We have been dr drug away with our own desires and, and not followed God. And so we are no different than some of these people here. It's by the grace of God that we haven't done what they've done. Amen? So it shows you the depravity of humans, but it also shows you that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Uh, that's, that's one of the gospel proclamations. He is, he is the tree. We are the branches, right? So we get our life source from him. We get our holiness from him. We get everything from him. And it's, it's given to us uh, accordingly uh, to the way God wants to bless us with it. We all have different gifts. We all have different blessings. But everything comes from, from him. And that's why Christ says we can do nothing apart from him. But it also highlights the grace and mercy of God 
to forgive sinners and cleanse them of unrighteousness. We're approaching Easter right now. That should be on our minds. How we were sinners and God forgave us. And how we still sin today and yet God continues to be faithful to us. That's going to be our struggle until the day we die. We're going to deal with the flesh. But when we die, God is going to deal with the flesh and he's going to rid us of it. And we are going to not have to deal with its curse any longer. But until then, we have to fight against unrighteousness. And as we look at these two books, it just highlights the grace and mercy God has given not only them, but also us. Well, if you look at today's passage, and you, you, heard, me, you heard me read it, uh, today's passage is no exception to the brutality and the corruption that, that we see in this book. In fact, it's probably one of the, as far as brutality is concerned, it's one of the worst passages that we've read so far. Um, in fact, brutality and corruption is a main theme that runs through this whole chapter. But even, even through that, we can take godly lessons from it. See, the, the lesson here is we need to be careful of what hate can do, uh, of what anger can do. Anger starts off, it's just like a small spark in a large forest, and by the time you know it, the whole forest is consumed with fire. So we have to be careful of, of what we do with our anger. It also is a good lesson on division. Division that can come amongst groups of people. Now, in our setting today, it's division that can come within our families or within the church setting. We have to be very careful of that because we see those two things run through this whole chapter. But if, if I'm going to point you to the most important lesson, I think that this story points to the importance of the cross. I, I truly do. It's an Old Testament story that is pointing to the New Testament. It's an Old Testament story that is pointing to the cross that Christ died on. It's an Old Testament story that is pointing to the power of the resurrection. And it's the Old Testament story that is pointing to the fact that Christ didn't stay in the grave, but that he rose and ascended into heaven and he's at the right hand of God. And we are benefactors because of that. So this story here is an important story for us. It shows us and highlights what Jesus overcame to be the savior of our souls. So in order for us to get there, let us start by trying to understand the passage. There are two rebellions here that I want to go over and then the outcome of the rebellion and then an application for us today. The first rebellion is labeled as another rebellion. This is another rebellion within uh, the house of Israel, or the nation of Israel. And this is concerning Sheba. Now, the end of chapter 19, it ends in a good and bad way. Uh, there are some good things, and then it, it kind of ends with turmoil. See, the good is that David was accepted back as the king of Israel. After Absalom was gone, he was, he was still in waiting, and he contacted his tribe, the tribe of Judah, and said, hey, I, you should be the first to receive me. And, and I should go back to you and be your king. And then you, you usher me into, uh, into Jerusalem. And then I, I, I take my, my, my throne back. And so they agree to that. And they're, they're bringing him in. 
as he requested. Now, the bad is that as soon as they're bringing him in, we talked about last week how David met all these different people and all these different people represented just different responses of, of people that you get on day in, day out basis. But as, as they're bringing him in, the house of Israel, the 10 other tribes, had an issue with Judah bringing them in. They, they were angry. So why, why have you done this to us? We have, we have 10 shares in David, meaning we have 10 tribes in the kingdom. We have just as much right to bring in the king as you do. Why have you betrayed us and done this to us? So these were the same men who, who were against David. But now that he's, he's coming back, of course, they want peace with him. They, 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 they want a portion with him. They want to be affiliated with him again. So infighting began between the ten northern tribes and also the two southern tribes. And it escalated when David returned. For some reason, they could not come to um, an agreement as to what to do with David. And chapter 19 ends with these words. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So there's this, this fighting going back and forth, back and forth. Well, what happens when you don't deal with things as we should in a godly way? Well, then they begin to fester. They begin to grow. They begin to become out of control. And that's exactly what happens. The other tribes take great offense to Judah, ushering in David. And chapter 19 ends with this turmoil between the north and the south. And Sheba was the leader of the northern rebellion. Look at verse 1. He says, we have no portion in David. Now, if you go back and read it at the end of chapter two, uh, 19, you see Israel, the ten tribes of the north, saying, oh, no, we have ten shares in David. We have ten portions in David. Now, you see Sheba saying, no, 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 we're disconnecting ourselves from David. He is not our king. In fact, these are harsh words because it's almost as if he is saying, he's not our people. Not only is he not our king, but he's not our people. So we have no shares in David, or no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. He says, every man to his tents, O Israel. See, when you look at Sheba, Sheba was a descendant of Saul. That meant he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was a northern tribe. The Bible says that he was a worthless man. Now, we've seen this title several times within First and Second Samuel. And basically, it means good for nothing, but it's, it's, it's even, there's, there's more meaning to it than that. When we say something is worthless, that we mean it's good for nothing, or we call somebody worthless, we say that person is good for nothing. Usually, it points to a, a lazy person. Um, but here, it's, it's pointing to an evil man. It's pointing to an evil man, and it's saying that, uh, they not only are good for nothing, not in a sense of laziness, but they are good for nothing in a sense that they do not conform to the law of God. In fact, they live in lawlessness. And what does the New Testament say about lawlessness? It says, sin is lawlessness. So, Sheba is a man who will not conform to the, to the law of God. Now, if you look back and see some of the different people who were called, um, who were called good for nothing or worthless men, Hophni and Phineas were two. 
They were the sons of Eli. They were called worthless men. Nabal, he was called a worthless man. He's the one who insulted uh, the king's servants. And the Lord basically took his life and gave David his wife. Uh, some of the Israelites who rebelled against the Lord's anointed were called worthless men. David was actually called this by Shimei as he left Jerusalem. And that ought to tell you the sin, the, the, the impact and the sin of Shimei by addressing the king as a worthless man. Now this worthless man, Sheba, he began a strong, strong rebellion. Look at verse 2. So at his words, all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now, so this was no small rebellion. This was another big issue for David. David was fearful of this rebellion, but he had learned a lot through his rebellion of Absalom. Verse 6, David says to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. See, he, he understood the danger here. He understood the threat here. And he tells Abishai, take your Lord's servant and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. See, David was not allowed, he was not about to let another person take Jerusalem by force. He knew it was crucial to go after Sheba, to to catch him before he was able to get to a fortified city to get the men he needed, to get the rest he needed, uh, to gather all his forces, to come up with a strategy and then come and attack. David wanted to strike first. And that's what we see him in dealing with this, uh, this rebellion from Sheba. Now, here's a note before we leave this portion. Uh, in the middle of all this, there's a story of redemption that we must not overlook. When David returns to Jerusalem, uh, he's not only dealing with another rebellion, but he's also dealing with devastated lives. The ten concubines that he had left and who were raped in public by his son Absalom were now defiled for life, and, and they were to be cast out. And instead of doing that, in verse 3, David put them in a house. David protected them, and he provided for them to the day of their death. Now, I, if that's not a beautiful picture of redemption, I, I don't know what is. If we, if, if we are to compare those concubines to anything else, it's a beautiful picture of God's love and mercy that he gives to sinners. We are defiled for life, and yet he gives us shelter, and yet he protects us, and yet he provides for us all the days of our lives in every way, not only physically, but spiritually as well. It's a wonderful and beautiful picture. But then, David is not only dealing with a rebellion from Sheba, but he's also dealing with rebellion from within. He's dealing with rebellion from Joab. The same time as the northern rebellion is, 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 is taking place, he's dealing with rebellion within his inner circle. For David to be received back as king over all the 12 tribes, he had to strike a deal. And, and that's, that's what he did. He struck a deal with the northern tribes. Turn your Bibles 
back to chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. This is after Absalom dies and David is, he wants to return to Jerusalem. In chapter 19, verse 11, it says that King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. He says, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Verse 13, and say to Amasa, Armasa, you are not, are, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And then 14 says that he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So I, I read that to you. We can go back now to chapter 20. I read that to you just so that you can see that David he struck this deal with the northern tribe. Uh, David basically replaced Joab, who was a nephew of his and commander of his army from the get-go. He replaced Joab with Amasa. Now, Amasa was also, uh, or I keep on saying Amasa, it's Amasa. If I say Amasa, you know I mean Amasa. Uh, wait, if I say Amasa, you know I mean Amasa. So Amasa was also uh, David's nephew. So he replaces one nephew with the other as commander of his army. And that was to sway the men of Judah to receive him back. Um, but at the same time, David was trying to rid himself of Joab. Why? Well, because he murdered Abner. Uh, Abner was somebody who David admired and looked up to. And uh, Joab, he murdered him because Abner murdered his brother or he actually, he killed him in self-defense. So Abner had no sin on him, but Joab just, he took him out by stabbing him in the stomach. That's kind of Joab's calling card. When he wants to take somebody out, he stabs them in the stomach. Now, there are other things that we want to consider as well as far as why David wants to replace Joab. Joab was the one who actually killed his son. Absalom was hanging in the tree, Joab, took not one, not two, but three spears, went and stuck them all in his heart. And then his servants went and stabbed Absalom as he hung in the tree. I'm sure David had an issue with that. And then also, it was Joab that after Absalom had died and David was mourning his son and would not come out, he just crying and, and, and would not greet the people, it was Joab who went and confronted David and basically threatened David. He told David, if he doesn't take his, basically, if you don't take your seat and go and, 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 and encourage the people, I'm going to start a rebellion that's going to be the worst you've ever seen. And it's going to be worse than Absalom. It's going to be a rebellion that you cannot handle. And so what does David do? He gets up and he goes and greets the people. So you have these potential issues that David is having with Joab. But one thing about Joab is that he didn't take kindly to those who opposed him. 
and he did not take kindly to his competitors, even if they were a family. You notice I said that Joab and Amasa were both David's nephews. So that means they were first cousins. He grabbed his first cousin by the beard and stabbed him in the stomach because he was being threatened. See, as soon as the rebellion of Sheba begins, David, he calls his new general in, and it's, it's Amasa, and he gives him instruction. The king said to Amasa in verse 4, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. Now, so he gives Amasa this first order. Amasa goes, and the only problem is that Amasa is delayed. And David understands that time is of the essence. And so he wants to hurry up and, and catch Sheba before he gets to these fortified cities. So with the Mesa taking longer than he should, David doesn't call Joab. You would think, okay, well, Amasa is in charge now, so Joab would be second in command. No. He calls Joab's brother, Abishai. And he tells Abishai to take care of the, rebe the rebellion. He says that in verse 5. Now, when we follow along, we can see how evident it is that Joab had fallen drastically in rank. And that's not something that Joab appreciated. So Abiathar gets Joab and, and, and the rest of the men from Judah, the, the mighty men, and they give chase to Sheba. And Amasa catches up to the group eventually. But Joab... He has other plans for his cousins. Look at verses 8 through 10. Let's, let's read those again. It says, When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Now, the language is kind of confusing here because you're not sure what exactly is going on. Uh, he, you don't, you're not sure if he's purposely doing this. The thing that we need to understand is that he had a knife in his hand and, and Amasa wasn't expecting to be stabbed. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard. And this was, this was a, a sign of, this was not a, an aggressive move here. Uh, this was a way of greeting each other. So he took, he, he took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. This was, as I said, this was not uncommon. Amasa had no idea what was coming next. Verse 10, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. I know that's a, that's a passage you want to read right before lunch. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Joab murdered Amasa in broad daylight. This is, this is gruesome. Hollywood couldn't do, couldn't do it like this. You know, this is just gruesome. I mean, it's, it's in broad daylight in view of everyone. Joab didn't care. He, he was empowered. You can see what kind of situation David was in at this point, at, at this moment in time. 
kills Amasa. In fact, leaves him there. Rushes off. A servant of his says, hey, if you are with Joab and King David, then follow him. If not, he's basically saying, you can follow him. And people came and were staring at his body, and they just grabbed it, threw it in the field, and threw something over him, and they took off. What was David going to do? It was apparent that these mighty men that the Bible speaks so highly of, these great warriors, who at times showed no mercy, but they, they, they fought for the kingdom of Israel. They fought for God. These mighty men, they followed Joab. And believe me, you didn't mess with these mighty men. So David is dealing with this rebellion with Sheba, and then he's dealing with this rebellion with Joab. Well, the rebellions are dealt with now in our passage and also later. Now, the peculiar thing about Joab is that Joab is not against David personally. In fact, he's very loyal to David. It's, it's David who, who kind of wavers back and forth with Joab. But, but, David, or, but Joab it seems to be loyal to him, at least it seems that way. But there's, a, there's something else going on here. I think there's a bigger picture. He's not willing to completely obey David. You see, what it looks like with Joab, and this is just my, this is my opinion looking at the passage, it seems that Joab is always looking out for the betterment of Israel. Even if the king is, is doing something, if the king is doing something that will, that will help Israel, it seems like Joab's always with David in that case. But if the king is doing something that will not help Israel, Joab is going to do his own thing. He's not going to do what the king tells him to do. So his allegiance is more towards the kingdom rather than the king. He sided with David because David was the best king for the job. He understood David was the Lord's anointed. But at the same time, it seemed like Joab was concerned about Israel. Even when he comes to this fortified city, Abel, and the woman comes out and says, are you going to destroy the heritage of the Lord? He's like, far be it from me. I, I, I do not want to do that. I'm an Israelite through and through. I, I don't want to destroy my own people. I don't want to destroy our own cities. Bring me the man who betrayed us. So you can see his allegiance is to the kingdom more than to the king. And because of this, Joab was always a threat to David. Now, Joab, he hurried to dispatch the imminent threat of Sheba and how the, the imminent threat that Sheba was to the nation of Israel. Sheba goes and takes refuge in Abel, uh, Beth Maica. Look at verses 15 and 16. All the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Bethmaica. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So they caught up with Sheba. They understood he was in there, and they were willing to destroy this, this whole city in order to get to him. And Joab and his mighty men, they would have completely destroyed the city in order to get to Sheba and kill him. But a wise woman spoke up. Verse 19, you seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. That means this, this city has history in Israel. It's nourished God's people. And you, are you willing to swallow up the heritage of the Lord? 
And that's where Joab answers her in verse 20. Far be it from me, far, uh, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Since that is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And so we see that the woman said to Joab, basically, don't worry about it. Be looking for his head because it's going to come over the fence. It's going to come over the wall here in a little bit. So verse 22, the woman goes back. And she shares her wisdom with the people. And they cut off the head of Sheba. They get it, they throw it over the wall. Joab sees it, blows the trumpet. When he blows the trumpet, that means it's done. Let's go back home. And that's where it ends in verse 22 that Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now, that is what happened at that moment. Sheba was dispatched. That rebellion was over. After that, it was like, okay, we're, we're done with the two major rebellions that we went through. That was done away with. But the other rebellion, Joab, that would come later. Joab would also suffer death because of his rebellion or his rebellious ways, but it would not be realized until after David's death. Though David was dead, he was the one who actually put the hit out on Joab's life. And we see that in 1 Kings chapter 2. If you want to uh, write this down for self-study, it's verses, basically all of chapter 2, but the specific verses are 5 and 6, and then um, verses 28 through 35. Uh, verses 5 and 6, that depicts David's uh, sort of like his last words to Solomon and, and his last instruction to Solomon. And he basically tells Solomon, uh, do not let Joab go to the grave in peace. And so Solomon goes and carries out his father's orders in verses 28 through 35. And the reason why um, Joab is put to death, specifically that the reason why David says he ought to be put to death is for the, for the murder of Abner and the murder of of uh, Amasa, those two men. Joab is a reminder of a lot of things. But for me, as I look at his life and I see the ending of his life, it's a reminder of what Jesus said to Peter. He said, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So we come to the end of the matter. And ironically, that's the name of the sermon. Throughout David's life, there was a long list of people who perished because they came against him. Now, you know, let's not get confused and, 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 and put any glory towards David. The reason why they perished was because he came against the Lord's anointed king. Those who came against David... Well, they were actually coming against God. And when you look at the life of David, we've said this plenty of times from a theological standpoint, there are a lot of parallels between the life of David and the life of Christ. David compares nothing to Christ, but there are a lot of things that happen to him throughout his life that point us to the New Testament. They point us to 
the Savior who was to come. Now, if we look at David's life, especially in these passages, there are some parallels to what Christ endured. And if, you know, we're a week away from Easter now, and, and, and we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, but before we can even get to the resurrection of our Lord, we, we have to ponder and think about his suffering. This is, this is the week leading up to the resurrection. If we go straight to the resurrection, we miss the whole gospel. You can't have the celebration without the agony. And so part of the suffering of Christ was not only the physical pain he endured, not only the, 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 the wrath of God that he faced that was unseen and, and what he endured there. Part of his suffering was being the son of God was betrayed by his enemies and he was also betrayed by his inner circle and in the same way you see the parallel with David being betrayed by Sheba here and then also being betrayed by Joab one Sheba his enemy two Joab within his inner circle now, I'm using this as a point of application. I'm not saying that these verses explicitly say this is exactly what's going to happen to Christ. But as an application, we can see the parallels, we can see the comparison, and I think it's, it's very intriguing. Christ, in the same way as David, endured persecution and betrayal for many. Like with David, the worst betrayals were from his own people. And that's what David is dealing with. This is not like, this is an enemy of his own people. This is not an enemy from outside of the tribe. So Christ, he was dealing with people who considered him their enemies, but yet they were his people. And then also, he had to fight against betrayal within his own inner circle. Now, his enemies were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, uh, the, the Jewish religious institution as a whole. This was the Son of God. This was God in the flesh. This is the Savior they had been waiting for. This is the promise that all of the Old Testament is pointing to. This is someone they should have been celebrating. This is someone they should have been worshiping as God's Son. But ultimately, they abused, they mocked him, and they crucified him. That was the betrayal they gave to the Son of God. And then if you look at his friends, within his friends, Christ was betrayed by Judas and Peter. And he was deserted by the rest of the disciples when their loyalty was needed the most. There are other parallels. Like David, Christ is God's anointed. David was God's anointed king, but Christ, he's much more than that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love Hebrews 1, 3 because it not only points to his kingship, but it points to his authority and his power. David was... He, 
He couldn't control everything. Even his right-hand man, he couldn't control him. He was threatened by him. He, uh, he had to let him do what he wanted to do because he was so powerful and he had all these mighty men against him. And Christ opposed the universe by the word of his power. He's a true king. Christ is more than an earthly king. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. Then we come to therefore. If, if we're going to claim that he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords, therefore, those who oppose him and live their lives as worthless men. I'm just taking the, 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 the verbiage used in, in the Bible. Live their lives as worthless men. What do I mean by that? Live their lives not conforming to his law. Live their lives as if they are their own king. They are their own God. Those worthless men and women will meet his wrath. Just as Sheba did and just as Joab did, but even worse. I have no idea where people walk, read the Bible front to back and walk away and say, there's no way God's going to, there's no way God's going to be mean to anybody or, or judge anybody or have wrath on anybody. You, you, you can't displace his holiness. His love is there and it's wonderful and it's awesome, but there's his holiness. And even for the Christian he, the Bible tells us that he disciplines those whom he loves. So we not only should fear him and revere him because of his wrath, but the same is true for his discipline. There's a difference between the two, and yet both are, are, are scary things. Those who oppose him and live their lives as worthless men, they will meet his wrath, and the Bible talks about this. Matthew 24, listen to the warning, verses 30 to 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That's going to happen, and it will happen on the last day. God will judge. There will be a righteous. There will be an unrighteous. The righteous will be pardoned because of the blood of Christ. The unrighteous will suffer his wrath because the blood does not cover their sin. The question we have to face is what, what side are we on? Have we walked to the foot of the cross? Have we looked at it? Have we pondered what's happened there? Have, have, have we considered our sin? Have we made the choice to see Christ for who he is? Have we given our lives, our everything? Have we picked up our cross and have we followed him? Are we denying ourselves? Like all this fits into our Christian walk, our Christian life. And I want to use the words of Solomon to end this sermon. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he says this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I think that's the appropriate response when we think about the coming judgment of God. Every rebellion will be dealt with. God will bring in his kingdom. And it's an everlasting kingdom. And for us, if we are in Christ, we're looking forward to that day. But if you are not in Christ, that's not a day for you to look forward to. But the awesome thing about it is we are given the gospel. You are given this moment in time. You are given today. Today is the day of salvation. Walk up to the cross. Understand what was done there. And know, know that you have a Savior in heaven. Just cry out to him. Let's pray.